Thanks for tuning in to the Heartland Message Podcast. Feel free to reach out with any questions and visit us online at weareheartland.us to find out more about all of our ministries and upcoming events. Well, hey, everybody, it's great to be with you today. I hope that you had a great Easter last weekend. And to those of you who won the game of Name That Easter Candy, uh, you should have received your peeps in the mail by now from me. So I hope that you have been digging into those and enjoying them. I want to say a special welcome to anybody who's joining us for the first or maybe the second time. Maybe you joined us last weekend for the first time at Easter and you thought, well, this was okay. I think I'll join them again and see what a normal weekend is like, uh, if you can consider this a normal weekend. But if that's you, if, if you have questions about anything related to Heartland or this ministry when the service is over today, I want to invite you to shoot us an email at info at and we will get back to you as soon as we as we possibly can. Since you're here today, you should know what we are all about. Simply stated, we believe that we exist in order to help awaken our diverse community to Jesus. We simply want as many people as possible to have that aha moment where it finally clicks for them and they realize how incredible it can be to live life with Christ. And we want to awaken people from all walks of life. We say around here that we don't want to simply awaken a single solitary group of people. We want to awaken people who don't look alike, who don't think alike, who don't vote alike, who don't come from the same backgrounds even. And so for the person who's just checking out church for the first time in a long time, to the, to the seeker who is looking for something, to the skeptic, to the cynic, you are all welcome and you have a place here. We want you here. In fact, to all the long-term Heartlanders, if we could just get a welcome in the chat room right now, just say, hey, you are welcome here. We are glad you are with us. If you have questions, let us know because you belong here. Well, today we are kicking off this brand new teaching series titled Calm, where we are going to talk very openly for the next few weeks about the topic of anxiety. And to be kind of transparent with you, I'm feeling a bit anxious about talking about anxiety for the next few weeks. I feel anxiety about it because I know what's at stake. Over the last month that this pandemic has completely obliterated life as we know it, I've been trying to connect with as many of you as I possibly can, and it has left an impression on me how much people are carrying and how much people are trying to juggle in this season. I've also been tuning in to industry webinars like so many of you are probably doing at home. So many, I lose track of them. In fact, I think when this is over, I'm going to do a boycott from webinars. It's just going to be like, listen, man, we can do a FaceTime call, I guess, but no more webinars for a while, please, right? Uh, but I've been engaging with church uh, partners and other friends who are pastors, and one of the things that is just really made an impression on me is how much anxiety so many people are carrying today. Anxiety levels are at all-time highs, and as we begin, I'll share just a couple of the things that have been creating anxiety for me personally. The first thing that's been causing me anxiety has simply been haircuts. Yeah, haircuts. When my barber shop closed and I knew I wasn't going to be able to get a haircut from my barber for several months, that caused me some anxiety. And then when I realized that it was going to last long enough that my wife had to do my haircuts, that caused me more anxiety. 
If you've been online following the hashtag CoronaCut, you know exactly what I'm talking about as guys have posted pictures of the haircuts their wives have been giving them. Here are just a few of my favorite. Take a look at these. Yeah, I mean, if I'm one of these guys, I think that I would just kind of give up and pull a Dugan Sherbandi and just buzz my head, just cut it clean off. Uh, for me, last week, uh, before we filmed our Easter teaching, it got to the point for me where I knew I needed a haircut. And so the day before we filmed the Easter teaching, I had my wife cut my hair, and this is what my haircut looked like halfway through. I don't know if you can see just quite how much of a mushroom-type haircut that was, but by the grace of God, she cleaned it up, and I was able to hide the rest under copious amounts of hair gel, so I'm okay. But haircuts are not the only thing that are creating anxiety in my household. In fact, the thing that's probably creating the most anxiety in my household for me and my wife is homeschooling. Anybody else? Can I get an amen for the homeschooling creating some anxiety? Yeah, just let me know. Let me hear it. Can we just have a moment of group therapy and you can just, just let it out if homeschooling is creating some anxiety for you? Now, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying this is the school district's fault or any of my kids' teachers' fault. In fact, I have never been more grateful for our school district and for my kids' teachers. They have done a phenomenal job. The, the way that they are helping my children continue to learn through distance education and through distance learning is off the charts. The problem is, the weak link in the chain is me. I don't know what I'm doing. I need someone to homeschool me on how to homeschool my kids. Right? And so every day we get up and I sit down with my three kids. We've got three kids in three different grades across a couple different schools. And so they all have their own systems and schedules. And so I look at my kids and I say, okay, child A, you've got Zoom calls today at 9.30 and 12.45. Okay, child B, you've got Zoom calls at 10.14 and uh, 3.30 in the afternoon. And child C, you've got Zoom calls at 4 a.m. and 10 p.m. I don't know. It's what my notes say here, so just get on and just do it. And then my oldest, my son Beckham, who's 12 years old and in middle school, drops the atomic bomb on me, and he says, Dad, can you help me with my math? No. No, I can't. I'm sorry, son. But it's time you learned the truth. You're old enough to know, Beckham, your dad is dumb. There, I've said it. It's out in the open. I don't have to carry this burden anymore. I don't have to live in the shadows any longer. But Beckham, I cannot help you with your math homework. I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. I guess just Google it. Really. The anxiety is so bad. Now, of course, I'm kidding. Well, I'm kind of kidding. I'm exaggerating, but it's actually truthful. What I'm kidding about is the fact that these are not the two biggest things creating anxiety in our lives today. The reality is that there are far, far more serious things creating anxiety in our lives. Over the last few weeks, I've been reading and studying and talking to people about this topic, and it's amazed me how much I have uh, been learning as this has really sunk in for me, the, the load that so many people are carrying. A lot of the material that we're going to pull for this series comes from a book on anxiety, on anxiety titled Anxious for Nothing by author and pastor Max Lucado. I highly recommend this book, but one of the things that he does near the beginning is he simply lays out the statistics that prove how big of an issue this is, especially for those of us who live in America. And so let me share some of these statistics with you. According to the National Institute for Mental Health, anxiety disorders are the number one most 
common mental health problem today among women and the number two most common mental health problem for men, second only to alcoholism. In any given year, over 50 million Americans will suffer from a panic attack. Statistically, the United States is the most anxious nation in the world by far, and we spend over $50 billion every year treating our anxiety, and you have to wonder, why is that? Our cars are safer and more reliable than ever before. Our homes are bigger and more comfortable than any homes that have ever existed on the planet. We regulate our crops and our food better than we ever have before. Our water is filtered and clean. Our utilities are safe and they work without us having to give them a second thought. And yet citizens in other parts of the world experience far lower levels of anxiety. In fact, we know that people who live outside the United States experience on average one-fifth the amount of anxiety that Americans feel. And what's really interesting is that when they immigrate to America, they quickly become just as anxious as everyone who was born here. So clearly there is something about our culture and way of life that causes anxiety to spike. If you have teenagers in your home, you know that they are not immune to anxiety. In a recent study that involved more than 200,000 incoming freshmen, teenagers reported all-time lows in overall mental health and emotional stability. Psychologist Robert Leahy writes that the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. Kids in America today have more toys and clothes and vacations and opportunities than literally anyone who has ever lived, and yet by the time they leave our homes at 18 years old, they are wrapped tighter than a onesie around a baby, or maybe more accurately, me in my clothes after a month of eating at home during a pandemic. My point is, we are an anxious people. And those are just the overarching statistics that doesn't even get into the individual stories that we are all personally familiar with. Most likely you or someone you know is, is facing a job loss or foreclosure, battling COVID or some other medical illness, struggling through a divorce or battling an addiction. And don't think for a second that Christians are immune to feeling anxiety. In fact, for Christians, it might even be worse. Because Christians are taught that by following Jesus, we live lives that are filled with peace. And so when we live a life that is not filled with peace, but is instead filled with anxiety, we feel like the problem can't be God, so it must be us. And in the end, we just feel even more guilty over the fact that we feel anxious. If there has ever been a time when it felt like there was a need for a specific teaching series, I believe that it is this one for today. And the good news is that God speaks directly to our anxiety. He gives us a prescription for how to deal with it. It's recorded for us in a document that we call the Book of Philippians. It's really a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians living in the city of Philippi. And in this, in this letter that he writes, God gives us very clear next steps for how to deal with our anxiety. I want to begin by reading the entire passage in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. We're going to make an overarching observation, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go with this series. But reading Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4, we see this. We're told, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. As you might imagine, the Bible is the single most downloaded document or text on Kindle devices. That makes sense because it's been the single most widely read and single most widely purchased book ever since the invention of the printing press. So the Bible is the most downloaded and the most read text on Kindle devices. That may not surprise you, but what may actually surprise you is that these five verses, we're told by the people at Kindle that these five verses are the single most highlighted passage in the single most read text on any Kindle devices. Clearly, this passage resonates deeply with us in our lives today. If you were to pick a summary statement from this passage, it would no doubt be verse 6, where the Apostle Paul writes simply, Do not be anxious about anything. Some of your translations may say, Be anxious for nothing. Now, when you hear that, our first reaction is like, Gosh, if he had just said, be less anxious, that would have been enough. That would have made sense. But to say, do not be anxious about anything? I mean, really? Like we should never feel anxiety at all? Is that what he was saying? That we should never feel even a momentary glimpse or or blip of anxiety? Well, no, that's not actually what he was saying. It's helpful to know that when the Apostle Paul wrote this line in the ancient Greek, he wrote that that sentence and that phrase in what is called the, the present active tense, which means he was talking about an ongoing state. The Apostle Paul was talking about a life of perpetual anxiety. And so if you were to write this in the modern English translation today, maybe a better way to say this would be this. You do not have to live in a permanent state of anxiety. The reality is that all of us are going to experience anxiety at different times in our lives because it's just a basic human emotion. It's important to remember that anxiety is not a sin. Feeling anxiety is not sinful. Anxiety is just a basic human emotion. All of us will experience anxiety. In fact, Jesus experienced anxiety. Just last weekend, we celebrated Easter. We celebrated the resurrection of Jesus back to life after laying down his life in a horribly painful death by being nailed to a a wooden cross. Arguably even worse than the pain of the cross, Jesus experienced complete separation from God the Father for the first time in all of eternity. And when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before any of this happened, before any of this went down, he was praying to the Father, and he pleaded with the Father that this cup might be taken away from him. And as he thought about what, state, what was in store for him in the coming hours, Jesus prayed so passionately, he was filled with so much anxiety that he sweat drops of blood. The presence of anxiety in our lives is unavoidable. It is living in the prison of anxiety perpetually that the Apostle Paul is trying to address here. Now at this point, 
let me pause and simply say that your anxiety can be so severe, you need to get professional help. Listen to me. If your anxiety is, is so severe that you need to be on medication to treat what is going on in your body and your hormones and the, the chemicals that are just raging inside of you, there is no shame in that. God gives us the wisdom of medicine and doctors today as a blessing for us to leverage. If you had high blood pressure, I would tell you, tell you to take medicine. So if you deal with perpetual chronic anxiety, if it is hereditary or due to anything else that, that, that needs to be treated medically, get it treated medically. There is no shame in doing that. At the same time, we want to understand that our anxiety is not only a physical thing, but it is also a spiritual thing. And so it makes sense that we would want to understand what God would say about our anxiety and what he would say about how to, how to come at it. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to camp out in these five verses, which the Apostle Paul wrote as it related to our anxiety. And we're going to see how we can move from anxiety to peace. We're going to see how we can move from anxiety to calm. And each week, we're going to dive deep into just one or maybe two verses. Today, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about verses four and five. And so if we get to the end of today and you think to yourself, well, John, that doesn't answer all my questions. John, that doesn't tell me everything I know to, to battle my anxiety. You're right. You're not going to get all of your answers today. That's why you have to come back for the next three weeks to get the full series. So if you're going to feel anxiety about something, maybe you should feel some anxiety about missing one of the weeks of the Calm series. The title of the series is simply Calm, and that word calm is going to serve as an acronym for this passage. This, this word calm and the four letters that make it up are going to make it easy for us to remember God's prescription for how to deal with our anxiety, and today we're going to begin with the letter C, which stands simply for the word celebrate. It's based on verses 4 and 5, so let's read those two verses again. Paul begins this passage by saying, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Just like we did when he said, do not be anxious about anything, we read that and we react strongly and we think to ourselves, are you kidding me, Paul? Like I'm supposed to jump around and celebrate the fact that I might lose my job? You want me to rejoice in that? You want me to celebrate that? My marriage is crumbling. Woohoo! I might get sick. Awesome! Wake up, Paul. That makes no sense. But is that what Paul was saying? Is that what Paul was trying to communicate to us? No. Of course not. Paul was not telling us that we should rejoice in the fact or in the things that give us anxiety. He's telling us to rejoice in what? In the chat room right now, tell me, what's the answer? He tells us to rejoice in, in verse 4, right at the very beginning, he tells us to rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, he tells us to rejoice not in the things that cause us anxiety. He tells us to rejoice in the Lord. And that is something that we can always do. We can always rejoice in the Lord. And what Paul is doing here as he begins this passage on anxiety is he is tapping into the fact that belief always precedes behavior. Belief precedes 
behavior. This is one of the things that makes Christianity different from every other world religion. And this is one of the things that Christians tend to, tend to get out of order. But the call of your heavenly father is not to clean up your life and start living better. The primary call of your heavenly father is to finally believe the truth about him and his deep love for you. And so before Paul ever gets into the nitty-gritty action steps of what we should do, which he will get to, and we will get to those as well later on in the series, but before he does, he begins with what we should believe and what we should understand about God. At its core, rejoicing in the Lord is not a momentary celebration. It is a deeply held belief that God exists and that he is, in verse 5, what? That he is near. He calls us to celebrate that God exists and that he is near. Paul begins speaking into our anxiety by telling us to rejoice in this fact. Last weekend, we celebrated Easter. Because of the weather, you might be tempted to think that the holiday we were celebrating last, week, last weekend was Christmas, not Easter. But at some point, things will warm up. Don't worry, Wisconsin. I promise you, the warm weather is coming. No doubt it will be here by August. I promise. Just sit tight. It's on its way. But at Christmas, one of the things that we celebrate is that one of the names for God is Emmanuel, which literally translates God with us. God is with you today, and that is what you are invited to rejoice in. Now, maybe... Privately, behind the screens at home, you're asking, why? Why, John, should I rejoice in the fact that God is with me? Why should I rejoice in the fact that God is near me? How does that help with my anxiety? Well, it serves as the first step to dealing with your anxiety because embedded in that truth and embedded in these verses is, are the two character traits about God that make his proximity to us worth celebrating. And those two character traits are the fact that God is in control and God is good. This is the big idea for today, so I want to illustrate it for you visually. Our peace is found between the two pillars of God's goodness and God's control. In between these two pillars, this is kind of the safe zone. This is where our anxiety goes down. Paul is calling us to live with, between these two beliefs. And it's when we get outside of these beliefs that we start to feel more anxiety. And everyone is different. Some of you, based on what you've experienced over the course of your life, you struggle to believe that God is good. And I want to come back to you. I want to talk about that in just a moment. For others of you, your struggle is not so much to believe that God is good. You struggle with, with trusting that God is in control. And part of the reason that you struggle to trust God with, with him being in control is because you want to have control. You love to have control, and so you live your life trying to control everything that you can. But what I've learned, and maybe you've learned the hard way as well, is that our anxiety goes up as our perceived control goes down. Psychologists proved this by studying the effects of war on a group of soldiers after World War II. Doctors met with two different groups of soldiers. They met with ground soldiers and they met with fighter pilots and they studied the anxiety levels of the two groups and what they found shocked them. On the one hand, you have fighter pilots who belonged to a field and worked in a field where a full 50% of them did not make it home. 
On the other side, you had ground soldiers who had much better odds of survival. They were far more likely to come back after going out. And yet what doctors found was that the ground troops suffered much higher levels of anxiety compared to fighter pilots, of which 93% reported they were happy with their assignment and their role. What they discovered, the reason was, was because fighter pilots had the controls in their hand. And when they went up, their hands were the ones on the controls of that plane. And that perceived control brought a level of comfort to them. Ground troops, on the other hand, could die at any moment from a variety of things. Bomb blitzes, machine gun fire, an enemy sniper that they never saw coming, or a bunch of other things, none of which they had any control over whatsoever. And that lack of control caused their anxiety to skyrocket. Now, you don't have to be a soldier who fights in war, though, to understand this or to relate to it. Road construction will do just fine. Did you know that German researchers discovered that your risk of suffering a heart attack goes up by 300% just getting stuck in traffic? Gridlock is the ultimate loss of control. You don't know why you're not moving. You don't know when you're going to start moving. You don't know if you're ever going to move again. For all you know, you might just grow old and die in your car. And worse, every time you think about that fact, you have to go to the restroom. Our anxiety goes up when we're faced with the reality that we're not in control. And our anxiety goes haywire when we start to believe that no one's in control, that there is no order, there is no one in charge. Anxiety consumes us when we start to believe that everything's in a free fall and we're all just hanging by a thread trying to keep the world from spiraling down into complete and total anarchy. We live in fear sometimes that at any moment society could completely collapse and it would become every man for himself and I better be prepared, I better, better prep for that. But Paul offers us an alternative. Paul invites us to rejoice in the fact that God is in control. Embedded in these verses is an understanding that he's got this. Like the little song like the little kid's song says from Sunday school, he's got the whole world in control. That's not just a cute nursery rhyme. That's a simple way to teach our children a profound truth about the God of the universe. He does have the whole world in his control. He does have the whole world in his hands. And he has the whole world in his hands because he spoke the world into existence. He said, let there be light, and bam, there was light, and it sent shockwaves through trillions of miles of vacant space. He said, let there be water, and let there be dry ground separated from it, and there was. He said, let the land produce vegetation, and it did. He said, let us make man in our image, and when he did, he breathed life into that man, and he puts his own DNA into us, and why does he do it? Because he loves us. How does he do it? He does it because he is in control. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the same today as he was a million years ago, and he'll be the same forevermore. He is the king and the ruler and the monarch and Lord over all of history. He raises an eyebrow and a million angels snap to attention and salute him. Every throne on earth is a footstool to his throne. Every crown on earth is paper mache next to his. He consults with zero advisors. He needs no Congress. He reports 
reports to no one. He is in charge. And the next time you feel anxious about something, you can rejoice in the fact that God's got this because he is in control. Can I get an amen in the chat, please? Goodness, I cannot wait to preach with you in the room again. I am so looking forward to that day. Not only is God in control, but God is also good. Some of you, as I said, don't doubt whether or not God's in control, but because of what you've had to experience in your life, because of the suffering, because of the tragedy all around you with people that you love, you sometimes question whether or not God is actually good. And I'm sorry for that. I really am. I am so sorry that you have had to experience the tragedy and the pain and the suffering in your life that you've had to experience. I wish I could tell you that the Christian life, that that following Jesus means that you would not have to experience pain in this world, but it's simply not true. In fact, choosing to make Jesus the leader of your life doesn't even mean that you get a reduced amount of pain in this life. It doesn't work that way. That's not how it works. But what we are promised is that God is good and that he will work towards our long-term good over the big picture of eternity. This is the promise God gives us in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, we are promised that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Even when things seem like they're going completely wrong, even when it seems like there can be no good, even when it seems like God has abandoned you or turned his back on you or he isn't listening to you, you can cling to the promise that he is good. So many times throughout the Bible, this is what we see. We see situations and stories where it looked like there could be no good that could come from it. It, it seemed like, like God was not involved in the situation until the very end when we see that God was there all along. Take Joseph, for example. Maybe you remember from Genesis, Joseph was his father's favorite child. Things started off strong for Joseph. But being his father's favorite caused his brothers to be jealous of them. And so they did to Joseph what all older siblings want to do to their younger siblings from time to time. They sold him into slavery. He spent years, we don't know exactly how long, in slavery in Egypt before he gets accused of a crime he doesn't commit where he's thrown into a prison cell. Joseph spends years rotting away, forgotten about in a prison cell where it seems like all hope is lost. It seems like there can be no good that comes of this story. But then Joseph is given his freedom. He's given his release, and he starts to wake his way up through the ranks of government until he becomes the the number two in control of all of Egypt. A famine hits the Middle East, and Joseph is in store of Egypt's storehouses, and guess who show up to beg for food? His older brothers. And do you remember what he said to them? When they come to see him, when they come face to face, look at what what he said to them in Genesis 50. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is so often the case. Something that seems like it can only end badly, like there can be no good that comes from it ends up being something that God uses not only for our good, but the good of a lot of people. This is 
Jesus' story, he's the ultimate example of this. On Friday, he went to the cross and he laid down his life. On Friday, he was buried. On Friday, everyone close to him went into hiding, went into mourning. On Saturday, it seemed like all hope was lost, like there was no good, only evil. But on Sunday, God raised him back to life, conquering sin and death once and for all. And it wasn't only good for Jesus, it was good for every single person who will ever live. God took the crucifixion of Friday and he turned it into the celebration of Sunday. Can he not do the same for you? My guess is that many of you can look back on some of the most difficult seasons of your life and with the perspective that only comes from the passing of time, can look back and see what felt so bad and so chaotic, you can now see that God used it for good in the end. And you can trust that God will do the same today. You may feel anxious for a wide variety of reasons, but Paul tells us that the first thing that you need to do is celebrate in the fact that God is with you because he is good and he is in control. If you believe that God is good but not in control, you will always try to take control yourself. And if you believe that God is in control, but you don't believe that he is always good, you will always distrust him. The question for all of us today is, can we live between the pillars of God's goodness and God's control? Can you control the details of your life? No. Can you control whether or not you keep your job? Of course not. Even if you work your hardest, you can't control the market. You can't control whether or not your company stays in business. But you can trust that God is in control. And even if you lose your job, he has another way to provide for you and those that you love. Can you control whether or not you experience a financial hiccup? No. No amount of money sitting in your bank account could ever guarantee that you won't experience a financial hiccup. So what do you do? You you give your tithe off the front end. You live below your means. You save for the future and you trust that God is good. Can you control your family? Wives, can you control your spouse? Don't answer that. Some of you I know would say, yeah, I'm doing a pretty good job of that. No, no. The more you try to control someone, the more they rebel. You can't control them. But what you can do is you can hand them over to God and you can say, God, you do a good work in them. Can you control your children and their safety? No amount of helmets and bubble wrap and trackers and restrictions could ever guarantee their safety. But you can trust them to a God who is good and to a God who loves them even more than you do. Again, there is so much more in this passage for us to unpack over the next three weeks. But it begins with rejoicing in the fact that God is near you. And you can find peace between the pillars of his control and his goodness. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we live in a world that has much to be anxious about today. But Lord, we know that you are near and that you are in control and you are good. And so Lord, we pray that this week we would find peace in you in those truths. Lord, as belief precedes behavior, 
Would we focus in on what we believe to be true about you as the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about that you're going to say to us in this series? It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone who agreed said, amen.